So we're in this series about uh, the book of Titus. And last week, you may remember, Rob Collis explored the qualifications of leaders in the church. And he charged us to consider who leads us in the faith. He said that this is because we, we need to think about this because their character matters. How they live matters because it often ends up shaping us too. So in our passage today, Paul shifts focus from, to, from the leaders to the rest of the church, to, to all of us, to, to the whole church, and gives some words of instruction. Now you've probably realized this already, but we get to cover some pretty interesting topics today. So buckle your seatbelt and stay with me on this ride. If you've gotten used to my, on average, 27 or so minute sermons, much shorter than Alistair's, then I apologize in advance for today. <laughs> so the, the, the question is, what is this passage about? Well, it starts out in verse 1, in two, chapter 2, 1, uh, saying, but as for you, to Titus, teach what accords to sound doctrine. And then at the end, in verse 10, uh, concludes with, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So the passage is sandwiched in between these references to doctrine. It's all about sound doctrine. Paul is saying, Titus, unlike these false teachers who we talked about before, who, by the way, false teachers, they may say some really interesting things that fit with exactly what the hearers want to hear. Don't do that. Instead, teach sound doctrine. He's saying for the whole church, it matters what we believe and how we live. So there's a temptation, I think, to read this passage that we just read as a list of do's and don'ts, a summary of moral obligations. However, what we must remember is that Christian living is always embodied doctrine. It's not just do's and don'ts, but it's living out our faith. So when we hear the word sound doctrine, we shouldn't be thinking dusty theology books or something. We should be thinking what it looks like when women and men live in a manner that glorifies God. The sound doctrine of God our Savior always maps on to real life. Our faith and our faithfulness, our faithful living, always go together. Remember the tension that, that Ben Chase invited us into a few weeks ago, uh, that our salvation is always by faith alone, and that faith moves us and releases us to live faithfully before God. So in today's passage, then, remember written to those recovering pirates on the island of Crete, we have a vision, a proclamation of, sound of the sound doctrine of God that is not about simply humanizing society or simply getting those rowdy Cretans to behave. That's not the picture. It's more than that. It's about living as a foretaste of God's kingdom. Paul is casting a vision of gospel liberation, of being freed from lawlessness, from worldly desire and misdirected passions that corrupt humanity. Alistair's going to unpack some of those fun words next week for you. But this week, we've got to hear it's about being freed from these things so that we become women and men who are truly alive. He's saying because, because God's grace has appeared in verse 11, we are free. That's the simple message. That's what it's about. However, some of you, I get, may not have heard it this way when Christine read it a few minutes ago. In fact, you may not have heard anything else that's been said since Christine read the words women, working at home, and submissive in the same sentence. <laughs> I get that. 
So it'll take some work together to hear this. I get that. If you're a Christian, I challenge you to trust the character of Jesus that you know as we explore this together. Trust who you know him to be as the starting point. And if you're not a Christian, I ask you to lay aside your knee-jerk responses to this, to stick with me, and see if we don't see something surprising sparkle through. So by way of introduction today, I want to give us a few guidelines to help hear Paul well. What is he saying? Reading scripture is always a practice of seeking to listen well, like in any conversation, right? To ask good questions and to do our best to hear Paul on his terms, not ours. And with a passage like this, I think clarifying some of these reading tools and listening tools is really important. So three things. One, what glasses are we wearing when we read? What lenses are we reading through? Sometimes we read things into the Bible that may not be there because of the lenses we're wearing. So we must ask ourselves, what filters and beliefs are we reading with? We are in danger of reading into the text things that might not have been intended. And we all have them. It's unavoidable. It's not, it's not a problem. We just all have them. Our families, our lived experience in the church... Our gender, our race, our professions, our personality, even our hometown, all of these things are part of how we read the Bible and see the world. They all affect how we hear Scripture, which is beautiful in many ways, right? We can sit down and share the different ways we hear God's Word, and that's an amazing gift. But we always also have to be prepared to ask, is my knee-jerk reaction that comes out, that gut impulse to a certain passage, actually the right one? Are we doing our best to listen well and see what Scripture says on its terms, not ours? The danger is is really big here, um, and it can give us a totally false impression of what something looks like. It's like when the director of a movie lets their own time period shape the presentation of a past event. You may not even know what's wrong with this yet. I'm about to tell you. An obvious example is the 1995 film Braveheart, and it's set in 13th century Scotland, And the director and actor, Mel Gibson, he overlooked the fact that the modern knee-length Scottish kilt didn't come into existence until 500 years after William Wallace fought for freedom from the English overlords. So the film gives us an entirely inaccurate picture of what happened, which is kind of sad because I love this movie. I love kilts. I'm Scottish. But it's wrong. We're seeing it incorrectly because we're seeing it through a lens that didn't exist in the 13th century. Now, sometimes scripture offends us. And it is true and right because the offense is from the cross of Christ, which calls us to lay down our whole lives and submit to Jesus. But sometimes scripture offends us because of our lenses, because of what we're bringing to it, more so than what the author intended. So we must always be asking, are we doing our best to listen well and see what Scripture says on its terms, not ours? That's the first thing, the lenses. The second thing, the context. The letter to Titus is brief. It's really short. That's the whole thing. It's a concise letter from Paul to a trusted coworker, a friend, written for a very specific purpose. In short, Titus is, er, Paul writes to Titus to tell him two things to appoint elders on the island, and to exhort the church to live like Christ for the sake of their witness to the culture. That's, those are his main two points in this little letter. It's short. 
And this context means that Paul doesn't need to lay out a full theology and explanation for the matters he mentions, because Titus already understands it. For example, he doesn't explain why debauchery is wrong. He doesn't give a full vision for marriage to Titus when he addresses young women, as he does in Ephesians chapter 5. He doesn't do this because Titus knows what he's talking about. It's a concise letter to a trusted friend. It's like if I wrote a letter to Alistair, we'd have some context for, for what we were talking about. So we have to read this letter remembering Paul's intent and the recipient, Titus, on Paul's terms, not ours. So first, one, we have our, what are our lenses? Two, what's the context? And three, on similarity and difference. We get some specific instructions to different groups of people today. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves. All of the commands, in a sense, can be applied to everyone following Jesus. We're all called to soberness, to self-control, to purity, to submission to one another in the body of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is not conditioned by generations or genders. So even though differences are highlighted in this passage, it is true that we are all made in God's image, Genesis tells us. And as Christians, we are all one in Christ. The similarity between us is essential. It is Paul himself who affirmed this most strongly in the New Testament through his image of the church as the body of Christ. We are all one body. Yet at the same time, there are differences too. We are all made in God's image. Yet as regards gender, men reflect this image in a unique way. Women reflect the same image of God in a unique way. Now, I acknowledge there's always cultural influence in how we perceive the difference between genders and generations, for that fact. But there is always also a fundamental difference between how God has designed men and women that we need to honor, too. There's tension here. The sameness and difference is part of seeing the image of God. But I also want to acknowledge a mistake that can happen sometimes in this conversation. And I want to address it carefully to make sure we don't make it ourselves. When our conviction that gender is designed by God is attached explicitly to culturally bound roles and views of, for example, what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman, harm can be produced. So many popular portrayals of gender roles in and out of the church do more towards idolizing a 20th century cultural view of man and woman born heavily out of the first industrial revolution and post-World War culture than anything else. So you can see that there is a serious problem when a narrow stereotype of a gender role is attached to the universal Christian conviction about the uniqueness of man and woman. You 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 end up having people believing that if I'm not a manly man that drives a truck or if I'm a dad who stays at home to take care of my kids, Or, on the other hand, if a woman who wants to be involved in the workplace or live a single life, we have these people thinking that they're rejecting God's plan and living in sin. This is just not the case. It's not what Paul's saying. Obviously, this has created many problems for many people who don't fit these stereotypes. It's a really big deal. So I want to be careful and thoughtful as we seek to hear Paul well. He does affirm difference between genders. Absolutely. He does. And it's important. But he's not employing our lenses to do so. 
And he always says our oneness in Christ, our similarity, is primary. And to be abundantly clear, this is the last thing, any reading of Paul or any other biblical author that's used to bring oppression to another human being, to enforce structures even that enable the power to domineer over the weak, is sinful and going against the freeing grain of the gospel. There's a liberating impulse, a freeing impulse to Jesus' message. This is why Martin Luther wrote about the freedom of the Christian in his, in his address to the medieval pope about all of his grievances against the abuses that were going on. It was about freedom that he was writing because he knew this was the gospel's heart, not oppression. So today our text gives instructions to the elderly, to women and men, and to slaves. So as we read together, let's remember what are our lenses, what's the context, and that we're all one in Christ, and there's differences too. So the main idea that, that Paul is sharing with us today and for us is let us reflect God's saving grace with our lives. Let us reflect God's saving grace with our lives so that, the purpose, so that others may find his grace too. Remember, this is the charge given to the church on Crete to the older men and women, the younger women and men, and slaves. And my hope is that we can see how the early Christians' conviction to live differently, to live out the sound doctrine, to reflect God's grace to the watching world, not only had the potential to change the world, but in fact, it actually did. It actually turned the world upside down. So let's jump back together to the ancient Mediterranean, to that pirate island of Crete, and go into Titus 2. 1 to 10. We'll start with verses 1 to 3. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So as we've done throughout this letter... We hear Paul's words contrasting against the raucous backdrop of Crete. Remember, it was an island full of liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Imagine then with me a household of the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean family that has converted to Christianity. At least three generations are living in this boisterous household. It's a place full of activity. Farming or generating textiles or another means of income and production is taking place in this, in this home. The grandparents, the elders, held an implicit level of respect culturally in families, as still is the case particularly in Asian and Middle Eastern cultures. So the question is, what were the older men and women doing in the household as the respected elders? The family has recently heard Titus preaching the good news of Jesus, and they've decided to follow him. And they're all working through the implications together. What does this mean for all of us in the same way, but also what does it mean for each of us differently? What were the older men and women then? In this context, he's talking probably about to people around the age of 50 or above. What were they doing with their positions of respect and influence in their households and in their communities? Are they continuing to grow in faith and love and steadfastness? Are they setting an example for the younger generations in the household for what it means to live the latter chapters of life honorably before God? 
Given Paul's words here, there seemed to be a drinking problem among the elderly one, as well as the women talking maliciously to one another and the men lacking self-control and dignity. For the elder men and women, then, this is what he's speaking into. And he's saying, live in a manner that brings life to your households. Don't be getting drunk, gossiping, growing bitter. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. Instead, live in a way that reflects the grace of God you've received. Reflect that back to those around you. Senior men and women, you have that opportunity. You have the chance to set an example for younger women and men about what it means to finish well. I speak this certainly with humility as a younger person, but this means for the church and for us that retirement for Christians must be more than entertainment for the last few decades of life. It must be more. It must have more purpose. If the whole of the Christian life is about giving ourselves away, and if true life is actually to be found in service to God, then the latter years are a rich opportunity to live with ongoing, deepening faith, with steadfastness, with self-control, with gospel witness, to live in a way that points to something beyond. Sure, if life ends at death, then it makes total sense that the last couple decades are self-centered and inward-focused. Why wouldn't they be? But, but if life goes beyond death, then the last chapters of life, they should be pointing to that, straining for what is to come, doing everything we can to represent Jesus well because we're so excited to be with him soon. And isn't it beautiful when we see this? Have you seen this before? Paul and Gail Stevens live in Point Grey. They have three granddaughters who are members of this church, Michelle, Nicole, and Allie. They're, all, they're, they're in their early 80s now. The other day, Michelle was telling my wife, Deanna, about her grandparents. Paul, you may have heard of him. He's a motivated, busy, fast-paced man. He's been a professor at Regent College for decades. He still teaches there today in his early 80s. He's also been a pastor, a counselor, a woodworker for many decades. The beauty that Michelle shared was that what was going on in their marriage now, his wife, Gail, has, has decreasing mobility in recent years and some other health, health difficulties. Yet Paul's willingness to slow down, to have unending patience, and to see serving her as his first priority in life, more, than, more important than anything else, has been so beautiful for her and her husband to watch. This couple has let the character of God shape them into their old age. And for Michelle and her husband, also named Paul, their grandparents have been a deep source of encouragement, of motivation, a picture of what they want to be like in 50 years. And that's actually exactly what she said. We leave their house saying to one another, wow, we hope we are like that when we're their age. Church, that's the vision that Paul is casting here. The sameness, remember, the sameness and difference, the sameness in these verses is that these commands are true for every Christian. Yet the particularity, the difference for the older men and women is that you don't retire and coast out the last years of your life. This is the time to push deeper into faith and to think sacrificially about the years ahead and ask, how, think, how can they be an act of worship? How, how can they be used to bring the future churches and the generations along closer to Jesus? 
Age itself doesn't equal sound, soundness and faith. Don't confuse that. It's not automatic. But what Paul is saying to the elderly is don't give up pursuing Jesus. Don't stagnate and be content with a shallow faith. The goal is to reflect God's saving grace all the way to death. And with the Apostle Paul in the older age, at the very end of his life, be able to say, I have finished the race and I've kept the faith. Well, there's more, of course. Let's continue on. Go back to verses uh, 2 to 5. They are to teach what is good. So that's the old women. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, this is really the part, right? If you hear this passage and think, well, that sounds regressive and offensive, I can see why, right? Biblical passages that highlight the particularity of women and men have been used for oppressive results at times, particularly for women. So let's lay aside that knee-jerk response and hear Paul in his own terms. What is the vision he's, he's casting for young women? Paul's instructions to young, young women here align closely with the cultural expectations of the Greco-Roman household of the first century. He's saying things that would have been entirely unsurprising in the cultural context. Gordon Fee points out that all of the instruction given to women here in this verse is related to the sphere of the home, all of it, which makes sense in this world because this was the place where women worked and spent the vast majority of their time. It was their realm of influence. However, we must be careful not to import a caricature of the 1950s housewife onto this century. If this is what you're thinking, this is not the situation. And the irony of that, of that picture is that I spent all day yesterday vacuuming. <laughs> so let's remember the first century Mediterranean house was the locus of a family's life. It was the center of commerce, of gathering, of socializing, of living. Further, remember Paul's short form writing in Titus, how it's an abbreviated letter? If we read this parallel instruction given to young women in 1 Timothy 5.14, he uses language that carries the broader meaning of managing the household as the master of the household. And especially in Jewish and Christian homes where women were offered much more respect and value than in the surrounding culture, this was understood as complementing the husband's sphere of work as of outside the home. And because of the woman's influence inside the home, it's no surprise, actually, that Paul is concerned about women reflecting God's saving grace. It was essential for the growth of the gospel. Their witness through their work at home was actually one of the key catalysts for the expansion of Christianity. As one scholar observes, listen to this quote, a woman's management and leadership in the home included the proactive practice of hospitality and teaching, hosting house churches, caring for needs, including visitors, orphans, and widows, and evangelizing. These functions represented the front line in the advancement of the gospel. Most of the activities of the Christian community took place in the domestic sphere, in the house church, and in the exercise of hospitality. This is often missed in the reading of Scripture because we see the church as a public institution. However, the church met and functioned in the domestic sphere while the New Testament 
was being written. Priscilla is a New Testament example of a woman who played this sort of role. Paul calls her his fellow co-worker in the gospel. The church met in her house, in her husband's house, and he specifically mentions them teaching together. So we can see what Paul is doing here with his instruction to young women. He does something similar later on in his, in his instruction to slaves. He's asserting some of the Greco-Roman cultural norms, but he does so for different reasons. He gives them a different why. It's for the sake of the gospel that he does this. He says, live like this so that God's word won't be reviled, in verse 5. So it won't be cast aside, but others will see something similar, but also different going on. I have friends who live in Amman, Jordan. I can't use their real names because they're missionaries here and they don't, they don't want that to be on record. Um, but I'll, I'll call them Jeff and Lisa for our sake. After Jeff and Lisa raised their children and became empty nesters, they decided not to buy a vacation home, but instead sell their house in Charlotte, North Carolina, and move to the Middle East to share the gospel in the heart of the Muslim world. That was their idea of retirement. I talked to their son just the other day, just the other day on the phone. He's a good friend of mine. And he told me that his parents are the only non-Muslims in their apartment building where they live in Amman. They live there right now. And they're often invited over to their neighbor's flat who owns the building <clears throat> for socializing. And the cultural expectation is that the men socialize in one room and the women socialize in another room separately. Now, he said they could resist this and decide to be known as the progressive Westerners who are going to break these expectations and ridiculous stereotypes. But they don't. So that they can build relationships and share Jesus with their neighbors. They respect cultural boundaries that they do not agree with, and it's opened up opportunities for them to share faith in the middle of Amman, Jordan. Sometimes it makes sense to adapt to fallen social structures in order to open a door that allows you, allows us to share the love of Jesus. To be similar, but also radically different, for radically different reasons. That's exactly what I think Paul is doing here. Paul doesn't teach Roman household norms out of the same, belief, out of the same beliefs and reasons that that culture held them. Do you know what that was built on? Maintaining the Pax Romana, the Roman Empire, and also all of its peace, and in that culture, seeing women as worth less than men, less intelligent, less important, even disposable. That's what that was built on. Not so for Paul. This is the same apostle who insisted that neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female exists in the body of Christ. We are all on the same plane at the foot of the cross. That's the similarity, the first truth. But for the sake of the gospel, Paul is saying to women, align with these general cultural codes, but do so for a whole new reason from a totally different motivation. Do so in order that the gospel may not be discredited, and so that you have a foot in the door to share the love of Jesus. And by the way, although, the, although this code may look similar for women, it's actually turned upside down because the person who's assumed to be an authority in these codes, the man, is ordered in Paul's teaching to become the servant of the wife. 
Now remember, Paul doesn't lay out his whole thing here. But in, in, in Titus here, he does teach for wives to submit to husbands in verse 5. But in the shorthand, he doesn't lay out the whole theology of marriage as he does in Ephesians 5. But we have to hear these words in that context because that's what he's referring to. Titus gets it. Now, I don't have time to lay out that whole thing right now. But I did find out just this week that my coworker, Marley, has done an advanced exegetical study of Ephesians 5. So if you want to know all the details, please talk to her. That's real. It's real. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'll give you a very short version. The context of marriage that Paul gives us is mutual submission to one another. Mutual submission. Now, the call of the husband, the one holding traditional authority, is outright servitude and laying down his, his life, his life for his wife, in the same way that Jesus Christ did for the church. In other words, absolute loving sacrifice, giving his life away. And that was totally radical because the, the person in authority usually isn't even addressed in these household codes. This was crazy in a world that, that believed men by nature were superior to women. No more though. The powerful is called to be a servant. The powerful, the expectation is called to wash feet. Sound familiar? Paul then upholds the call for the wife to submit to her husband in the context of mutual submission and as the husband being the outright servant of the wife. Do you see the mutuality here? It's a radical subversion and leveling of gender hierarchy in the Roman Empire. What is it like to submit to another who is called to lay down his life for you? What is it like to lay down your life for someone who trusts you enough to submit to you? See, it's, it's always a downward movement, a downward serving of the other. Now, we can't get into the details of what this means in different situations. It does not mean that if you're being abused in any sense that you're just meant to take it. And while I get that on paper, this can still be difficult to accept. I suggest to you that when you see it in practice, when you see a couple living this out, living from a deep place of trust in Christ and in one another, living to serve one another in every way possible, it's absolutely, undeniably beautiful. When you see a husband doing everything he can for his wife, serving her so that she is fully alive in Christ and free to live out her vocational call in all of its fullness, and when you see a wife supporting and caring for her husband and believing in him when he doesn't believe in himself, and moving him towards Christ, too. This is the vision that Paul is getting at. This is what he's laying out. Now, remember our interpretive guides. If anyone reads something like this and takes it as a license to seize control or power over another, you've missed the point. There is no direction for a husband to domineer or boss around or to serve his wife, treat his wife in any way that's less only to love and serve. The one in power isn't even addressed. Next, the young men. Titus 2.6. It's shorter. <laughs> For a reason. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Young men, be self-controlled. <laughs> That's it. I won't overcomplicate it because it's actually that simple. 
What is absolutely essential for young men to reflect God's saving grace to the watching world? Self-control. We live in a world where 96% of homicides in the world are committed by men. 91% of all rape victims are women. Can you imagine a world where self-control was the defining value of men in the church, in, in the island of Crete, in this crazy culture? In our world today, can you see Paul's vision here where there's a group of men on Crete of all places who live with self-control that's offered as worship to God? Not ruled by anger or outbursts or impulsive desires, but by the gift of the Holy Spirit of self-control? Can you imagine what sort of witness that would be? Men, be self-controlled. Own up to your actions. Take responsibility for them. You are responsible. And join me together in begging the Holy Spirit for more of this fruit. Because it's essential to the gospel. And there's a lot at stake if we live without it. Be self-controlled. Now lastly, if we haven't covered enough topics today, Paul goes on to address slaves in verses 9 and 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Okay, I'm calling an N.T. Wright to offer us a fresh lens for this passage. It's the easiest way to do it. Hear this with me. Slavery was a fact of life in the first century, and there was no pretending it wasn't. You could no more abolish slavery in the first century than you could invent space travel. The early Christians worked within what was possible at that time while constantly lodging protests against abuses within the system and where they could against the system itself. The vital thing was that slaves, having become Christians, shouldn't regard themselves as above the law. Some might think, because my master isn't a Christian, and I am, this gives me a right to tell him what's what. After all, I'm a servant of the king of the world, and he isn't. What message would that send to the watching world of Crete or anywhere else? It would indicate that this new cult was simply making trouble and ought to be stamped out. No, Christian slaves, like Christians in every walk of life, must be good advertisements, good ambassadors for the teaching of God our Savior. When we read Paul's attitude towards slavery across the New Testament, we see how evident this is. In 1 Corinthians, he urges slaves to gain freedom if they can. In Philemon, we see Paul level the playing field between masters and slaves, highlighting their similarity as brothers and sisters in Christ first, and then urging them to treat one another in their differences as brothers in Christ should treat one another. He preaches the body of Christ, remember, a place that, that the institution of slavery, as one commentator puts it, could only wilt and die. Paul didn't want to start a slave revolt, though, which would have only ended in a bloodbath. So he gave those who remained slaves this time, it's likely to pagan masters particularly, a new why. Work with integrity and uprightness so that there is no hindrance to the advancement of the gospel. 
not to maintain order and stability in the empire, that's not number one, but so that the doctrine of God our Savior may be adorned. And so that more people may come to know Jesus and masters and slaves will become brothers and sisters and people will be treated like like image bearers of God. That's the goal. That's what he's going towards. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. Rodney Stark was was an agnostic sociologist when he set out to answer the, the huge historical question debacle. How was it that the Jewish cult following a crucified prophet in AD 30, grew from insignificance to being the official religion of the Roman Empire in less than 300 years. How did this happen? It's boggled historians forever. Do you know what he found, this agnostic sociologist? He discovered that the early Christians, they must have listened to Paul. They reflected God's saving grace with their lives. Others saw it and joined in particularly among those who were oppressed. Among women and slaves, the gospel spread like wildfire. Why? Because it gave them personhood and dignity before God. It brought them into a family where where they began to be treated like human beings, as image bearers of God. In the Christian families, men were held to the exact same ethics as women were of fidelity and chastity. Widows were cared for and treated with respect. Women married older. The average age in the Roman Empire for a woman or a girl to be married was 12 to a man who was much older. This wasn't the case in the Christian communities. They didn't let that happen. Women didn't get married until at least the age of 18. We could go on and on. Stark's findings are absolutely incredible into this. And over his career studying this history, Rodney Stark became a Christian. He's now a professor at Baylor University. And if you're interested in this more, Alistair can tell you all about it. This research was one of the reasons that he decided to become a Christian himself. Now, what I've tried to show you today is this. The moral vision of the New Testament that is reflected here in Titus chapter 2, that may sound regressive to us at some places, was actually the most progressive vision in the Roman Empire that was truly incomprehensible to pagans. They had no way of understanding why people would live this way. Now, we live in a different time and place, don't we? Some of these gospel values are so ingrained in our thinking and our culture that we can't imagine life any other way. We can't imagine seeing people as as less than in this debasing way. So what does it mean for all of us? Well, it means that we live in a way that reflects God's saving grace so that others will see it, just like they did. It means we live in connection, in deep connection to the brokenness of our society, not apart from it, but in deep connection with the brokenness around us, yet at the same time in deep contrast to it. It means it's our work to continue walking out our faith, and discovering how to do so creatively. Maybe it's burying $100 bills on the beach. Who knows? Let's find ways to do it creatively in Vancouver in 2018 in ways that the surrounding culture simply can't understand. It means we live in a way that only makes sense if Jesus is alive. That the only reason that can be explained for how we live is that Jesus is alive. And we hope and we pray every day that our lives reflect God's saving grace in a way that others see it 
And they find the saving grace too.